Hello, everybody, and welcome to On the Safe Side, a monthly podcast hosted by the editors of Safety and Health Magazine, the official magazine of the National Safety Council. This is Barry Botino, and I'm an associate editor with Safety and Health. And with me, as always, are my fellow associate editors, Mr. Kevin Drulli and Mr. Alan Ferguson. This is January, and we want to wish you a very happy new year and hope you and your families enjoy a safe, healthy, and prosperous 2022. If you're counting along with us, this marks episode number 23 of On the Safe Side. We truly appreciate you listening, and we thank you for your time and your support. If you'd like to catch up on all the news from around the occupational safety world, please check us out online, and you can find us at safetyandhealthmagazine.com. We know that all of you have had a unique journey into the safety profession, and we want to hear all about it for our My Story column in the magazine. You and your colleagues can submit your personal stories of how a career in safety came about by emailing us at safehealth at nsc.org. That's safehealth at nsc.org. In this month's episode, Alan will take us on a deep dive into his feature story about artificial intelligence, which is quite prevalent in our daily lives. For example, those attentive little digital assistant devices that we won't name for fear that they start playing your favorite tunes or add something to your grocery list. AI also is opening up big opportunities in occupational safety and health. We'll be joined this month by Rajni Walia, a vice president and senior leader within the brain-centric reliability team at DACRA Organizational Safety and Reliability. Rajni is among a group of DACRA experts who write a regular column on safety leadership for safety and health. She will discuss the safety benefits for organizations who achieve a just culture in our five questions with segment. And stay tuned for our pop quiz when we'll talk about the future and what it holds, or what we imagine it might hold. For the first time in 2022, let's get this episode rolling. Each month here on The Safe Side, we take an in-depth look at a feature story from the pages of Safety and Health magazine which we call our deep dive segment. In our January issue, Alan covers the topic of AI, that's artificial intelligence, not Hall of Fame point guard Alan Iverson, looking at its impact on worker safety and the collaborative efforts needed between safety professionals and other departments in order to make effective use of these technologies. Or in other words, to put them into practice, as the answer might say. Alan, we look forward to hearing much more about this topic. So when you're ready, will you please ergonomically reach down to slap the nearest slab of hardwood and take us on this latest deep dive. Well, thank you so much, Kevin, for that intro. Um, yeah, so artificial intelligence and machine learning have obviously been with us for a while and it made some significant strides in the century, as, as Barry mentioned. You think about your digital assistants that shall remain unnamed. Or if you use a streaming service, you know, that tries to anticipate what shows or movies you might like to watch next. And, and many apps also use AI, obviously. In the world of safety, AI and machine learning is steadily making its way into more prominence. And I think one of the more interesting ways is through AI-enabled cameras. So I attended a, a technical session on AI and machine learning in October at the 2021 NSC Safety Congress and Expo in Orlando. And part of that presentation was a set of short looping videos showing the capabilities of those cameras. And I think I was most impressed with the cameras that could de detect whether workers are wearing personal protective equipment and that you know, includes hard hats and vests. Uh, and those cameras can also detect other things like safety violations, machine guarding, and the interactions of workers and or machinery. 
Uh, I later learned while reporting my story is say you have an AI-enabled camera set up to detect fall protection PPE. It can detect not only if a harness is on a worker, but if that harness is tethered or not. And I thought that was really impressive. And that information came from Donovan Hornsby, Corporate Development and Strategy Officer with Benchmark Digital Partners in the Benchmark ESG digital platform. He was also one of the presenters at the uh, technical session at Congress Nexpo. And that example also gives one of the benefits of AI to safety professionals, and that's continuous observations. You don't have to go get your clipboard and go out and check to see if workers are doing or wearing what they're supposed to. You have a constant eye, and obviously that gets into some privacy concerns that we'll address later. The other potential major benefits for safety professionals are the ability to gain deeper insights and have real-time alerts. And those alerts can serve as a way to help employees avoid unsafe situations, let's say like a beeping or buzzing, when they're in an area when they're, they're not supposed to be, or maybe they're too close to an energized machine or something like that. Or there are alerts to help organizations respond to incidents more quickly, like an AI-enabled detection system for when somebody falls. There also are programs that can detect cognitive impairment within individual workers, whether that's because of working long hours or because they didn't sleep well the night before for other reasons, and that can help a worker or an organization avoid an incident, obviously. And one method of gaining deeper insights is heat mapping. That can show where high-risk activities are taking place in a facility, for example. And if you combine that heat map with other operational data, Hornsby said, you can gain even greater insights. You can see if problems are happening at certain times, for example. Then there's another part of AI called natural language processing. And what that can do is take sets of written or typed items, such as incident reports, observations, or inspections, and find insights or patterns within those. And obviously reading over thousands of those reports and potentially millions of words wouldn't undoubtedly take too much time for people. Not only that, then you have to organize and process all that information that was just read. And like I said, that's virtually impossible for any human, but you can find patterns with the program. Like the heat maps, you might find that certain incidents are happening with a couple of kinds of operations or a certain time or shift. And the difference is that natural language processing, the difference from heat maps anyway, is that natural language processing often finding insights within sets of unstructured narratives. One part of natural language processing is known as sentiment analysis, which can help detect feelings and attitudes based on certain words and phrases. Safety culture surveys are one way to use sentiment analysis, the tech session in Orlando highlighted. The use of sentiment analysis allows for more open-ended questions instead of, say, multiple choice or quote-unquote prescriptive answers, the presentation also noted. So I wanted to be said, what is always lacked in those scenarios is the ability to talk openly and freely about what workers are seeing and what they're experiencing. Well, Alan, naturally with technology, there's often a fear that it will take over jobs, including that of safety professionals. With AI, are any of those fears valid? Well, I'm loath to make predictions about the distant future, but all indications are that at least within the near future, AI will definitely need safety professionals' expertise. Uh, These programs usually need help getting started on the right foot, and they need someone to help keep them on track. Obviously, with any workplace, there are also constantly changing variables, such as a new shift, new personnel, new processes, or plan expansion. And Hornsby said, all these things introduce new variables that the AI machine learning 
uh, is going to have to factor in. And a lot of cases, it's going to take humans to help influence that. So there was a webinar in June on the role of AI in the future of work hosted by NIOSH. And Dr. Husheng Darabi, a professor at the University of Illinois Chicago and co-director of the Occupational Safety Program at that school's Great Lakes Center for Occupational Health and Safety, gave another example of where human expertise is needed to help guide AI. And that was in the mining industry. And he said, you need people who understand mining and understand the hazards. They understand the situations where unsafe events could happen. And you need workers to tell you how they feel and how they can use the technology. And naturally, that applies to many other fields. And that's why, at least in part, Jay Vietas, chief of the Emerging Technologies branch in NIOSH's Division of Science Integration, who was on the same webinar, said AI likely will prove, quote, very complementary to most, if not jo all, jobs in the future. You mentioned earlier about the privacy concerns, especially with a constant eye on workers. Um, how can organizations address those and other issues? Well, much of this is probably going to sound like familiar advice, I would imagine. The first is being transparent as possible about how these technologies will be implemented, how they'll be used, who will have access to the data and how it will be secured, things like that. Then organizations have to walk the walk. I think that's how you build trust in many situations. If you don't break that trust and eventually people become accustomed to a new situation or new normal and everything's probably fine for the most part, but if something happens and that trust is gone, it's difficult to get it back. And one of the best ways to address privacy and other concerns, Hornsby said, is to allow workers to have a seat at the table when organizations are thinking about bringing in AI. He said, I don't know how you would build trust if you're just dumping a technology out there and asking folks to trust us on this unless they have a seat at the table. And if they have that seat at the table, then they understand the motivations and they understand the objectives. And ultimately, organizations are just trying to find a way to keep people safe. As I wrap up, I will say in the story, there's also some other advice on how to start to implement AI in your organization. One is to look to see if AI is deployed in other parts of your company and see what might work for safety. Uh, another piece of advice is to use equipment that you might already have. Uh, this mainly applies to things like closed circuit cameras. And you can turn those into AI-enabled cameras at least somewhat easily from what I understand. The other thing Hornsby said is to start small, a proof of concept or a pilot program, for example, and try to tackle one safety issue instead of a larger one or multiple ones. He said, figure out something that you can get your arms around, get quick buy-in, see what happens, and let it inform what you might do on a broader scale. And another thing I'll add is that the University of Illinois Chicago is planning on offering an online course this spring to help safety pros learn more about AI. Uh, you can email Preethi Pratap at P-L-A-K-S-H-M-I at U-I-C dot E-D-U for more information. Well, thank you so much as always, Alan, for this interesting and important feature. If you want to learn more about AI and read other news from around the safety world, please check out the January issue of Safety and Health Magazine or log on to safetyandhealthmagazine.com. Every safety professional in our audience has a unique story. So what's yours? Safety and Health Magazine wants to hear about it. We want to know about your unique path into the occupational health and safety field for our My Story column. You can email your submission to safehealth at nsc.org to share the road that you've traveled in your career journey of keeping workers safe and healthy. Organizations with workers who truly believe their leaders are working for them and not against them are recognized in the safety world as having a just culture. 
But what exactly is a just culture and how does an organization achieve it? Rajni Walia from DEGRA Organizational Safety and Reliability joins us this month to share those answers and much more in our five questions with segment. Rajni is a vice president at DECRA, and she's a senior leader within DECRA's brain-centric reliability team. And she recently wrote about this topic for Safety and Health magazine. And Rajni also looks after the serious injury and fatality work at DECRA. Rajni, it's a pleasure to have you with us. Thanks for joining us on the safe side this month. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here with you all this afternoon or this evening, depending on when you're, when you're going to be listening to this podcast. Well, Rajni, where we wanted to start with you was just kind of a general question. How would you define what a just culture is for our listeners? That is an excellent question and a question that a lot of people have have struggled with, in my opinion. So it's a, it's a just culture really is an organization or a type of culture where there is true trust and in trust in, in the sense that people can fail and they can fail safely is kind of what I, what I want to get at. And, and you're providing all of the safety related information, but people are really encouraged to be themselves to, and if they bring up a concern, they don't have to be worried. They don't have to worry that they're going to be reprimanded. It's an organization where there's true collaboration, where people can support one another, can can bring ideas up, and know that, more importantly, know that their leadership is truly does care for them and is going to make the right decisions. So a lot of times when you look at organizations, and I've, I've supported organizations that say they have a just culture, and what they do is they have these complex algorithms that calculate whether something is just and not just. To me, I think you're overcomplicating it. When you think of a just organization, we you should be able to have an organization where people they are free to be themselves, and you're in an, and you can be in a meeting and everybody's speaking is speaking freely. They're not afraid, and you truly can get just a, a lot of creativity and and and, and yeah, and I, and I think at at the heart of it, they they know that their leadership has their backing. Most times, if you think of an incident, a lot of times what happens is an individual gets pinned. And I, in my view, I always say nobody comes to work wanting to get hurt. In fact, people are, are, in, are, are making in their minds what they think is the right decision. So when I, when I talk to a lot of leaders, I say, well, have you identified and articulated what is acceptable and unacceptable behavior? Have you stated, have you made it easy for people to distinguish what is an exposure versus what's not? Have you enabled an environment where they are set up for success? And so a lot of it is actually having to look inward, look at the systems. Are the systems designed to to enable somebody to to be safe? And then if you've done all of those things, you have to accept that we, that people at the end of the day are people and they're going to make a mistake. And so you have to support that and, and it can't be frowned upon. So it's like every lead, every decision that you make, every reaction that you have is going to be looked at. And so a just culture to me is where there is, as I mentioned back, it's an atmosphere of trust. So you mentioned in a recent article that it takes a learning organization to achieve just culture. What characteristics make up a learning organization? That is a fantastic question. So what I would say is it takes a couple things. So a couple of characteristics. One is, is the organization inquisitive? 
Is there a relentless pursuit of information for proactive discovery of system deficiencies? Are they looking out for those deficiencies? Are they trying to proactively identify those and mitigate those? Or are they just assuming that every day is going to be the same and, and you know that nothing has changed? So one is being inquisitive. The second one is innovates, demonstrates high creativity within a change management process that is open to new ways of doing things. That is another definition of a learning organization, one that is not afraid of, of changing up the way things are done. Engaging, so creates change in ways that increase productivity, proactivity and productivity and commitment across all levels. So it really is in an organization that is truly engaged. So when we, in our world, we talk about employees that are simply involved and those are the ones that you, if you ask them to do something, they'll do something. But an engaged employee is one that's going to go above and beyond, one that is going to not be afraid to offer up opinion. And so that is a, another tenant or tenant of, an, of a learning organization, takes action, so is responsive to relevant information and driving change. So if something does come up, they're, they're, they're taking action. And, and people in that organization know that once it, something is escalated, they don't have to worry that, uh, that it's not going to get taken care of. In fact, they know it will get taken care of. Adapt, so is agile, resilient, and quick to respond to unexpected events. Unexpected events are going to occur. And so when they do, they're prepared for it. And they say, you know what, this is going to help us build our resilience. Uh, reinforces, so aligns behaviors, cultures, and systems to support learning. So I would say that those are, are really the six things that create a learning organization. So being inquisitive, being innovative, engaging, taking action, adapting, and reinforcing are the characteristics of a learning organization, in my opinion. For safety leaders trying to achieve just culture, what type of commitment is involved? Great question. And I, my simple response to that is a steadfast commitment, a commitment knowing that there, that there is, there's going to be hurdles. There are going to be challenges along the way and, uh, and, and, and being prepared for that. So an organization that is focused on and in pursuit of high reliability. Now, when I say high reliability, a high reliability organization is one that operates with, uh, with remarkable reliability despite inherent risk and complexities associated with their operation. So one that anticipates points of failure and manages with proper controls, one that catches small deviations early and responds properly and appropriately, and an organization that has operational discipline. So they know what needs to get done and everybody's kind of singing from the same tune. So if you don't have an organization that is aligned, I mean, that, that, that takes some work. So I would say it's not something that can easily be done. It's not something that can be done overnight. And so it's the type of commitment is from an, of an organization is, is, as I mentioned, steadfast in that they have to be committed that there's going to be hurdles along the way. And they have to be prepared to make some tough decisions. They have to be prepared that, you know what, this is, you can only make small changes at a time. So I, it, everything in, in, in our world, when we talk about culture, culture is created, a culture of an organization is created by their leadership. So if we talk about type of commitment, all leaders need to be committed because it has to start there first. Well, Rajni, you mentioned those hurdles, and I'm curious if if organizations can get stuck at certain points in the journey, and, and what are some remedies to keep the process moving? 
they can certainly get stuck. So when we when we go back to like thinking about what a just culture is, and if you enable it and foster, you know, the the whole notion of being inquisitive and being able to fail safely and all of that other stuff, and and encouraging people to speak up, encouraging people to provide input. I, I, it's, it's not uncommon when we work with organizations for there to be a little blip, uh, a little bump in their safety and their safety incidents. And, and what I would say is that's okay. That means people are now forthcoming. That means people are now, they're, they're now recognizing that they're, that the system may not be perfect and that, you know, as humans, maybe we're not perfect. And so I, I would say they're, they're, that that is certainly one point in the journey where people can get stuck. So if they see their safety start to go backward, a lot of organizations immediately, they start to panic. And what I say is, look, you have to let it run its course. That doesn't, there's no need for panic at that point. That just means that you're doing something right. That means people, when I, when I went back and, and when I touched on trust, they're trusting that you're going to make the right, right decision. And they're trusting that, you know, that even though there is an incident here, that they're not going to get, they're not going to get let go. And they're not going to get pinned as, you know, a human error or that the person was being complacent. Uh, so I would say that's one part, part of the journey. The other part where they can get stuck is wanting overnight success. So a lot of leaders, they, they, they can, they can become impatient and I, and I know we work with organizations and they want their safety safety improvement and results to change overnight. And our response is it's not going to happen overnight. This is a journey. And you mentioned journey in your question, and that's exactly what it is. It's a journey that's going to require, you know, that's that's going to have, again, some hurdles along the way. Some people may may realize that, you know what, that this is this is not the right organization or the organization may may weed them out by the way. Now things are done. And, and that, again, it's okay. So I think to me, it's, it's, it requires patience, it requires persistence, and it requires a commitment. And if the organization is truly committed, it will get the return on investment. Definitely will. So how does a just culture benefit both organizations and workers? Another great question. There are a number of benefits, I would say. The, the first is that an organization can effectively use events as opportunities to improve the operations and more importantly, prevent future incidents. So if we talk about the, a learning organization, one that truly does incorporate event learning and, and does learn from it, it, its incidents, that means that you can actually prevent future incidents. So that's the first and foremost sort of benefit. If you create an, an organization that is prepared and enabled to intervene during upset conditions to minimize impact, so what you're actually doing is you're building resilience. That's another benefit. You're building an, or, an organization that knows that, you know what, look, in times, things may not go perfectly as planned, but we as an, as a, as an organization are prepared. So that's another one. Another benefit is that you have an organization that is actively seeking out weak signals. So those are potential problems. Those are exposures in the work environment that may have not been there. So the knowing that people are actively kind of identifying those weak signals, that is huge because that is something that may happen. And as I, as I talk about with my organizations or the people that I work with, I, or that we even consult with, I say, you know, every organization is one decision away from a serious injury or fatality. And if we, if we break that down, that is significant. So if, if you have an organization that is proactively, not reactively, 
looking at those those potential problems, those little things, a little hum in the machine, a little leak here that that may transpire into a big something that's drastic. That is massive. That to me is is a huge benefit. An organization that counters cognitive bias and groupthink by being open to different points of view and creating an inquisitive environment. One, you know, groupthink is is another very, very big factor. So we have a part of the brain that's called the social brain. And and what it actually does is it inhibits us from speaking up and really, truly speaking our mind. Because what we want to do is we want to go with the flow. We don't want to be outcasted. And so if we're in an organization where we feel like people are going to make judgment based on what we say, then you're withholding a lot of you know, potential benefit that may come out of just fostering an open sort of environment where people can offer up ideas that may be brilliant, that may, you know, may, it may require a little change, but that change may benefit the organization significantly. So that's, that's another benefit is, is actually countering that cognitive bias and group thing. And organizations that run to operate flawlessly by attending to the elements that drive execution and minimizing the, you know, those that increase error, another good benefit. So you're, you're operating, when I, when I speak about operational discipline, that's what it is. It's operating flawlessly by attending to those things that will actually increase that, you know, that minimize things that will increase error. And then I would say the ultimate benefit um, is, is employee well-being and satisfaction, knowing that their organization truly cares about them. During this last year and a half, um, I, I think, gentlemen, you would agree that people have had time to reflect and they've put greater weight on their well-being, possibly more than they ever have before. So as the leader, you, you must recognize that well-being has both safety as well as financial implications. And the only way to ensure a safe workforce is by demonstrating through your actions that employee well-being is a priority, and that is created by having a just culture, a culture where where people can feel safe. And now more than ever, people are, are, are as I mentioned, they're reflecting, they're thinking back, you know, do I want to be here? Or do I want to be in an organization where, you know, maybe, maybe my best interest is not is not considered? And so I'd say a number of huge benefits, the one that right now is catching a lot of people's attention is, you know, how do they prevent attrition? How do they prevent people from leaving jobs? And I, and I would say people have, again, have had time to reflect and think and to, and to them, it's like, well, my safety and my well-being more importantly is important. So as an organization, as leaders must demonstrate that that is their top priority. Well, Rajni, thank you so much for sharing your insights on this important safety leadership topic with us. It was great to have you with us here on The Safe Side. It was my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Our discussion with Alan about artificial intelligence might be in the past, but it ultimately leaves us still thinking about the future. Surely when we were youngsters, some visualization of AI or glitzy technology helped frame how we felt or imagined how our existences might, well, exist at a later time. Or hey, maybe they didn't. Either way, that's what we're here to discuss in this installment of the Pop Quiz. What do you recall thinking about the quote-unquote future when you conceived of it years ago. Uh, for me, I'll get it started. I know a lot of people say the Simpsons did it first, but for me, I think the Jetsons get this bit of foresight. Um, remember seeing some of those things and not being completely roped in. And obviously those cartoons were made in the 60s, but even several decades later, I think 
you can maybe think that once we got over that magical 2000, that would be flying around in the air and communicating with robots and things like that. So I think really I was, you know, took the hook, line and sinker, the idea of the things that you see on, on popular culture. Uh, I will say, and as I thought about it more for this, it also kind of works into a, a, a roadway safety element. I think the, the teleportation would be nice because you could go from place to place without having to get in a car or a bus or a train. And there's that risk of, you know, something possibly happening, but, uh, that's, that's what I'll say. Just kind of some of the, the down the middle stuff. Uh, Alan, how about you? I was going to also say the Jetsons as well. I mean, obviously that's influential for, <laughs> for the future when you used to watch cartoons uh, and, and back to the future too, as far as like uh, flying vehicles. Um, so I, I mean, I thought that would definitely be more prominent than it, than it is now, but you understand why <laughs> if we have trouble with vehicles, drivers and vehicles on the ground. And I don't think we want people in the air necessarily. Uh, also back to the future too, made it seem like the fax machine would be more prominent in our lives, but uh, that didn't really work out, did it? And I, you know, I also thought time travel would be um, something that probably was, uh, you know, feasible in the future because of the in part because of the 1979 movie time after time with malcolm mcdowell um so yeah none, none of these things are really come to fruition it's always the things that you never think of i, I always always feel that you, that do come to fruition so barry what about you well i know that every saturday morning growing up when my brother and i were cleaning the house um we would have uh, we would have really enjoyed you know just pressing a button and having the robot cleaning lady do it, um, and and we also would have uh, we would have loved to have a Roomba, uh, which we do have now, but unfortunately we didn't have that growing up. I also enjoyed the Jetsons, and I watched a lot of Spider Man growing up. So um, the Green Goblin had a had an awesome flying vehicle, and I was kind of hoping that we would eventually get there, but maybe someday. Well, good stuff as always, guys. Good. To- to kind of go off the beaten path as we always do in the in the pop quiz but now we want to hear from you our listeners uh, go ahead and share your thoughts on this matter by emailing us at safehealth at nsc.org or checking in with the hashtag safeside pop quiz on social media thank you so much for joining us for this month's episode we know that your time is valuable and we're grateful that you've spent some of it with us if you'd like to share some feedback email us at safehealth at nsc.org. We also appreciate you sharing a rating and a review of this podcast. To find stories such as Alan's feature on AI, as well as the latest news from around the safety world, visit us online at safetyandhealthmagazine.com. Also, make sure you follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or LinkedIn. Original music for this podcast was composed by Steve Maslin. Thank you so much, Steve. We'll be back next month with another episode to have more safety-related discussions, talk to trusted voices from around the profession, and hopefully make you smile a little. In the meantime, we appreciate you listening via whatever platform, and feel free to spread the word about this podcast. Most of all, please stay on the safe side.